Hello everyone and welcome to Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham and it has been a whole month since my last podcast. My apologies for that. Honestly, I've just had a lot more going on than usual, both at work and personally, all good stuff, but the podcast is usually the first thing to go when I need to create some space. So thanks for your patience. Unfortunately, you're going to have to be a bit more patient with me over the next couple of weeks because I'm shutting everything down to prepare for an upcoming conference our church is hosting. Um, our church, Taste Creek Presbyterian Church, our church uh, hosts an annual conference for um, both our church and community called the Good of the Bluegrass Conference. Typically, we bring in an outside speaker, but this year I'm going to be leading our time, and the reason for that has to do with the topic of the conference. We are uh, taking up the topic of human sexuality, sexual ethics, gender, and so forth. And I don't have to tell you that this topic is the topic in our society right now. Every pastor and church, I believe, needs to be prepared to speak on it, and we have chosen this conference to do just that. But because it's so potentially uh, contentious, our leadership just chose to do this one in-house. I I know our people, I know our context, and so it's probably best for me to do the speaking this year. Anyway, a lot of prep required for that, which is what I'll be doing over the next couple of weeks. Uh, by the way, if you are in central Kentucky and would like to come to that, it's taking place February 17th through the 19th, and you can go to uh, gbcon.org for information and registration. Now, in light of that conference, what I want to do with this podcast episode is kind of offer a preemptive qualifier for the conference itself. You see, the Christian sexual ethic is so controversial in our day that I think it takes a lot of work to simply get the watching world to even consider what we believe and practice. For many, it's this one singular issue that makes Christianity wholly implausible or even downright offensive. And I get that. Our world has been remade by the sexual revolution such that uh, your views on human sexuality have become a boundary marker of our society's plausibility structure. That's a term used by Leslie Newbegin. He argues that every culture has its own plausibility structure, uh, which is just taken for granted beliefs and practices that are just assumed to be true and good. And any beliefs and practices that are outside that plausibility structure are therefore considered implausible. And no matter the culture, faithful Christianity will always, in some way, challenge the plausibility structure of that culture. For us in the modern West, the number one thing that makes Christianity implausible to our society is our sexual ethic. Now, for clarity's sake, I should say, when I say sexual ethic, I have in mind the historical sexual ethic of the Christian faith. I realize that uh, some, some Christian traditions have rearranged the ethics of Christianity to fit within our culture's plausibility structure, modifying uh, centuries of Christian teaching to affirm the more modern LGBTQ ethic. But I, I'm just not going to insult anyone's intelligence by pretending the Bible says something other than what it says, that the church has historically taught something other than it has taught. It is what it is. 
Um, the Bible teaches that sex is reserved for one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. And um, I don't think any honest, honest being the operative word here, honest um, biblical scholarship would come to a different conclusion. And therefore, for many, uh, because of this one singular issue, Christianity is not a plausible option. You can offer whatever uh, Christian apologetic you wish to offer, but if Christianity is not LGBTQ affirming in the fullest sense, then Christianity is not an option for many in our culture. That's the pressure um, I'm feeling prepping for our upcoming conference. I can do everything possible to prepare a a humble and winsome and charitable, gracious, thoughtful, name your adjective, presentation on human sexuality. But because of my bottom line ethical conclusion, it simply remains implausible or even offensive. And so what I thought I would do with this podcast is offer somewhat of a preamble to our conference. I'll use the conference to outline the Christian view of human sexuality. I'm going to use this podcast to just hopefully make it a plausible view to consider. Now, in my experience dialoguing about this issue, and I've had a lot of experience, I think the only hope of plausibility in our cultural context is to offer a critique of our plausibility structure that we just take for granted to help us see that maybe the assumptions we have on sexuality are unfounded and fallible assumptions. And I want to do that in three ways. The first two points, I'm going to allow other contexts to critique our context, and then I'll end with an internal critique of our own context. So we're going to consider three things. We're going to look at a historical sexual ethic, a diverse sexual ethic, and then end with the Western sexual ethic. Let's start with history's sexual ethic. When it comes to human sexuality, there's a myth that where we find ourselves is somehow the final frontier of progress, as if we have cast off the archaic and repressive norms of the past to finally arrive at the truest ethical understanding of human sexuality. This is simply not true. What we believe, celebrate, and practice in our society is in many ways an ethical regression to antiquity practices. So consider, for example, the ancient Roman world from which Christianity emerged. It was an exceedingly promiscuous context of unfettered sexual appetites. Rome would make our culture blush. All forms of heterosexuality, homosexuality, nearly any sexual activity was acceptable. There was little to no adherence to marital fidelity. Um, Orgies, public orgies were normative. Um, Most shockingly, men having adolescent boys as sexual partners was not just acceptable, but celebrated as a mentoring rite of passage. And into that context comes this weird ethic of Christianity that viewed sex as a sacred thing reserved for one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. Perhaps nothing was more countercultural about the early church to the Greco-Roman world than their sexual convictions and practices. This was a revolutionary ethic that ended up revolutionizing the West. Christians are viewed as repressive when it comes to sex and sexuality, and to some degree that's a fair critique, as many Christian traditions, including evangelicalism, have treated sex and sexuality as 
taboo at best and, and just dirty at worst. I'll certainly be critiquing purity culture in our upcoming conference. But the Bible doesn't view sex as dirty. The Bible views sex as both lovely and dangerous. Song of Solomon compares it to a burning fire, and that's a good picture. Fire is a good thing, but only within its proper boundaries. Fire, properly ordered, gives life to society. Fire, unrestrained, burns down society, and so it is with sex. In my sermon this past Sunday, I mentioned a British historian named Tom Holland. Holland is an atheist who is also a big believer in Christianity, and no, I didn't misspeak there. Uh, He's not a follower of Jesus, but he is an excellent historian, and therefore following the historical evidence admits that Christianity, its worldview and ethic, are an undeniably positive advancement for human civilization. Before his research, Holland himself says that he had a naive love affair for antiquity, but the more he studied, the more he was horrified by pre-Christian morality. And then he had traced the advancement of Christian monogamy and how that revolutionized sex and marriage, and he couldn't deny that this was a good advancement for humanity. He's not a Christian, but he's very outspoken that Christian beliefs and practices were and are good for the world. The point I'm making is that what we are seeing in Western civilization is not progressive, but regressive, specifically a return to the sexual disarray before the Christian revolution. And what's interesting about this is we celebrate all other forms of human advancement. We don't want to return to Greco-Roman medicine and science, slavery and class systems and so forth. But in the area of human sexuality, we are viewing regress as progress. Now, of course, you can say this is the one area where we need to return, that Christianity's sexual ethic ruined the world. But historically speaking, it's tough to make that case. Monogamous marriages between man and woman, homes where children are raised with mother and father, this is proven to be the most optimal foundation of human civilization. And even modern sociology continues to reinforce that conclusion. Anyway, the point I'm making is that historically speaking, what has unfolded in our society is not the progressive ethic we, we assume it to be, nor is it a diverse ethic. I think an interesting development that is taking place within Western society is the desire to repent of our imperialistic past while at the same time forcing its sexual ethic upon everyone. So, for example, LGBTQ activists put a lot of pressure on Netflix recently to cancel Dave Chappelle's comedy special because he uses his comedy to critique transgenderism. But surely I'm not the only one to notice the historical irony of a coalition of predominantly white, wealthy social elites suppressing the artistic expression of a black comedian. It's astounding to me how quickly the sexual revolution has usurped our social order such that um, the rights and interests of LGBT community hold more prominence than even the black community that we once enslaved, segregated, and oppressed. You do realize that statistically speaking, the African American community holds the most conservative views on sexuality and gender in our culture. 
that's true across the board nationally, but becomes dramatically true of African Americans not living in California and New York, particularly the Southern black population, the very ones who are historically the most oppressed people in America. Do we care what they think? Yes, black lives matter, but do black opinions matter, especially when it comes to sexuality? Here's the hard truth that no one wants to admit. The sexual revolution is not a diverse revolution, far from it. It is, by and large, a white, elite, academic, wealthy, Western revolution. Another example. This is what the Department of State tweeted out on International Pronouns Day. Quote, Today on International Pronouns Day, we share why many people list pronouns on their email and social media profiles. And then they share a State Department link on why Americans include pronouns in their communications. Okay, the State Department is in charge of foreign affairs, and they are lecturing the foreign world on why it's important to include pronouns in your emails and social media. It just reeks of imperialism. I talked about this in a previous podcast, but this is the new frontier of Western imperialism and dominance. Powerful Western elites may not be conquering worlds anymore, but you better believe that we are conquering worldviews. So do Westerners not realize or care that the vast majority of our world, Asia, Africa, Middle East, Central, South America, do Westerners realize or care that these cultures subscribe to a different sexual ethic than ours? Do Westerners not see the arrogance of claiming that the past few decades of Western civilization, which radically overturned century-old views of sex and gender, is now the one true sexual ethic? The harsh reality, I believe, is that Westerners don't care. They don't see this. It's just we're right, everyone else is wrong, and we are going to colonize the rest of the world with our world view. But to those outside the White West, it just feels like the same old imperialistic story. In its harshest forms, it's an aggressive purging of any other competing ethic through hate speech legislation. In its milder forms, it's just a patronizing hubris that views other cultures as helplessly archaic and in need of our sophisticated, educated, and enlightened ethic. If Western elites are serious about repenting of their imperialistic past, then it will actually require humility to listen and learn from other cultures. And I just don't think the West is capable of such humility. I believe the sexual revolution is far more important to Westerners than listening to what Africa and Asia have to say about sexuality and gender. I believe the metropolitan centers of America, in their heart of hearts, just couldn't care less what rural and middle Americans think about sex. And most of all, I believe there is zero concern for the majority of people on this planet who derive their sexual ethics from a religious ethical standard. And if your inclination is to say, well, it's because all these people are either behind the times or just outright bigots, then you're proving my point. That is colonizing arrogance at its finest. Which brings me to my final point. We've looked through the lens of history and diversity, so internally, let's consider our culture's sexual ethic itself. 
Now, first, it must be stated that, yes, even the secular West has a sexual ethic. The reason that is important to state is that the idea that we should not put boundaries on sexuality, that we should embrace all sexual expressions, to judge another's sexual attraction is, um, by its nature, bigotry. All of that is a standard that even the sexual revolution itself cannot maintain. Did you know that bestiality was legally protected in Kentucky until a couple years ago? And please spare me, for those outside of Kentucky, please spare me the Kentucky jokes. But it was. It was protected until um, two years ago. In fact, there were even websites devoted to inviting visitors to come to Kentucky where they were free to have sex with animals, some even arranging these sexual encounters for a fee. Now, of course, thankfully, Kentucky passed legislation to outlaw this awful practice. But I can't help but ask why. On what ethical ground is this legislation based? And this isn't a straw man. It's a serious dilemma. Zoophilia, the sexual attraction to animals, is a recognized sexual fetish. Are we to condemn and deny those who have this attraction? Are we willing to call this a perversion of sexuality? Is this merely an animal rights issue, or are we willing to say that sex with animals does not cultivate the common good of society? And if the response is, how dare I bring something like zoophilia into the discussion, well, then you're conceding that you find this form of sexual attraction to be abnormal and detrimental to human flourishing. If not, then we should affirm it. The only point I'm making here is that the notion of an all-encompassing inclusivity is a myth. Everyone has their boundaries, or all boundaries need to go. And I suppose if the revolution continues on, then that's the logical outcome. I'm not the first to point out that academic publications are now seeking to normalize or even affirm pedophilia. So who knows, perhaps the day, I don't know, will come when there is literally no sexual ethic and all expressions and practices are affirmed and accepted. But the greater point I want to make here is that even if that were the case, there is still a sexual ethic. In fact, an incredibly militant sexual ethic. So militant that if any disagree with it, there is swift and severe and merciless retribution in response. It is true that Christianity has a history of harsh judgment toward LGBTQ friends. It's, it's awful. My gay friends have been marginalized at best, scorned at worst, and the church has a long, long way to go in learning how to hold to our ethics while loving LGBTQ friends. I'll be the first to admit that, and I will talk about it at our upcoming conference. But may I suggest that a new, harsh, judgmental self-righteousness has emerged. The secular West absolutely has a sexual ethic, and it is that if you don't embrace the new sexual ethic, there is no room for you in our society. Simply put, sexual ethics is no longer an ethical discussion. It is now a religious discussion. I've talked about Charles Taylor's work on secularism in this podcast before, but his evaluation of the secular age is that the secular age is unsustainable. We can try to replace religion with secularity, but that is a vain project because people remain undeniably religious. And so what's taking place is historical religious traditions 
are merely being replaced with modern movements enacted in religious ways. And I would argue that the most devout religion of our time has been constructed around human sexuality. It's puritanical what is taking place. There is a strict orthodox that all must adhere to. If violated, there is discipline and even excommunication from society. That, that self-censorship that you feel when it comes to this topic, it shows you how religious this issue has become. We are even resurrecting blasphemy laws. That's what hate speech legislation is. It's legislatively protecting our society's deeply held religious beliefs around sexuality. And so my critique of the modern Western sexual ethic is a religious critique. In my humble opinion, it's doing to us what religion always does to us. Conversion and legalistic adherence is being demanded of everyone. And so as it turns out, the sexual revolution's supposed liberation has turned into a form of religious oppression. So those are my thoughts on this admittedly contentious topic from a historical, diverse, and Western perspective. So what's the Christian perspective? Well, that's what I will seek to explore at our upcoming conference. Admittedly, Christians too have failed in this area. I don't blame the watching world for the way we are stereotyped because there is much truth to those stereotypes. And I'm hoping to present something at our upcoming conference that is refreshingly beautiful and compelling when it comes to human sexuality. But I recognize that to even make it a plausible option to consider, I had to offer a critique of our current plausibility structure. And that was my aim in this podcast. Again, if I piqued your interest, you are welcome to join us for our conference. Until then, I am taking a couple weeks off to prepare, and then we will be back afterward for another episode of Every Square Inch. Every Square Inch.